This morning, our message comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These are the words of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that by the Holy Spirit you would open these deep and wonderful words that you gave to the Apostle Paul. We pray that you would bring them forth in all related texts, Lord, in all their fullness, that they would have their way with us, that we would be made and remade in your image. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we ended our time in the Word talking about worship, and we were looking at the centrality, the importance, and the power of worship. We saw from Hebrews 12 that worship, in fact, sums up in a word our proper response to the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, even as we live in the midst of a seismically shifting secular world of the modern West, which Christ is intentionally giving over to its sins and shaking to its core precisely to show that it is built on false foundations that cannot stand up instead of the only foundation that can, which is Christ and his word. And we saw from Joshua 5 and 6 and from 2 Corinthians 10 that worship also sums up in a word the warfare that Christ calls us to. It is biblical worship, biblically offered, that pleases the risen and reigning Christ to rise up and show himself mighty on our behalf. And then you can see from our text this morning in Romans 12 that worship also sums up in a word the entire Christian life. Remember that both in Greek and in Hebrew, the word for worship also means to serve. To worship is to serve. To serve is to worship. They're two sides of the same coin and cannot be separated. Well, this week we want to build on all of that by asking, what is worship? Because frankly, as modern evangelicals, we tend not to know much about biblical worship. We look around the New Testament and we don't see a lot of instruction or examples concerning worship. And we conclude that the Bible doesn't have much to say about it. But what what we're missing is the fact that almost all of God's instruction and examples concerning worship are in the Old Testament. And so the New Testament authors did not see the need to repeat all that. They just kept referring to it and alluding to it in the New Testament. And that's what exactly you have in our sermon text in Romans 12. Present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service or reasonable worship. That is quintessential Old Testament worship language. We see Paul doing the same thing in Philippians 2, verse 17. He refers to his whole ministry as an apostle and his calling in terms of Old Testament worship. I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. 
We see the Apostle Peter doing something very similar in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So repeatedly, the apostles use a shorthand way of of teaching us and reminding us about worship by simply referring back to the Old Testament, quoting various texts, using the imagery of Old Testament worship. So what then is the difference between Old Testament and New Testament worship? Well, the main difference was simply that Old Testament worship was looking forward to the work of Christ, which was pictured and pointed to in the various sacrifices and offerings, also in the priesthood of Aaron, also in the very architecture of the tabernacle and the Old Testament temple. Hebrews 10, verse 4, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Verse 12, But this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We need to grasp the significance of what is being said there. No one in the history of the world has ever been saved by the blood of an animal. Everyone who has ever been saved has been saved by the blood of Christ. God was using the Old Testament animals and offerings to teach their faith, to inform their faith, to strengthen the faith of believers who lived centuries before Christ would ever come. We have to remember that Abraham, the father of all believers, lived almost 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. So God was building up and sustaining their faith by using these sacrifices and other means like like a lens that they could look through, like a telescope so they could see from afar the promises concerning Christ. So with all that in mind, let's come back to the question I already posed, what is worship? Well, answering that question in depth and detail would take a lot more than one sermon. But I at least want to get the basics this morning by looking at seven things that worship is. Seven things that worship is. Number one, worship is communing at table with the living God and one another through Christ. Worship is communing at table with the living God and one another through Christ. Think about it. When Jesus wanted to paint a picture of life in the kingdom, what picture did he present? Fellowship at the table. He said the kingdom would be reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Matthew 8, verse 11. So when we think about it, we go back in the book of Genesis, even before the fall, we can see that God made the table about a lot more than food. 
He also made it for fellowship. And when you think about it, fellowship is food. It is food for the heart. It is food for the soul. And while we need both kinds of food that we put in our mouths, that we take into our heart, and we want them both to be tasty, if you have to choose, good fellowship at the table is more important than choice cuisine on the table. Proverbs fifteen seventeen: Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. Proverbs 17, 1, better is a dry morsel with quietness, that is, peace, harmony, than a house full of feasting with strife. So it's not just food that gives us life. It's fellowship that gives us life. What did Jesus say about eternal life? He said eternal life is knowing, that is, fellowship with the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. John 17, 3. And this fellowship is also food for God as well. The Old Testament refers to the various worship offerings of of God's people as the food of God. You can see an example of that in Leviticus 21, 6. It refers to the offerings presented to God on the altar as the food of God. Now, this does not mean that God was literally eating the offerings, nor did it mean that somehow he was needy, he was not all sufficient, and so he needed this food for strength. What it means is, is that the communion with and worship of God's people is for God like steaks on the grill and bread from the oven for us. Our worship, our fellowship is what God desires It is what he delights in. So in worship, we commune at table with the living God and with one another. And it is the Lord's table and its fellowship that forms up the family of God. The family of God involves all of these individual sons and daughters and families We're scattered all over. We're going about our business. We're taking care of our responsibilities. What is it that confects the people of God and pulls them together and makes the family of God visible to the world? It's the table, the table and its fellowship. The same way that it is your family table with Kids and parents going all over the place all day long. What is it that confects the family and makes it visible and brings it together? It's the table. And so that's the way it is at church as well. So worship is communing at table with the living God and one another through Christ. Number two, worship is thanksgiving to God for his love and grace. Worship is thanksgiving to God for his love and grace. From the very beginning, before the fall, we see God's great love and favor. Remember, oftentimes we look at grace, particularly as it is related to salvation. And that is where we see the height of God's grace. How do we define grace? 
unmerited favor is the typical definition. That's actually a wonderful definition because that's exactly what it is. It's favor from God that has not been owned. It has not been earned. It is simply bestowed by God. And so when sin comes into the world, the grace of God, the favor of God has to superabound and overcome. It has to overcome sin and death and bring life and righteousness in its place through Christ. But that does not mean that God's unearned favor was not present in the world before. We see all over the original creation design God's favor. Consider, God created man, male and female, in his own image. In other words, he created us to be his sons and daughters. Finite, dependent creatures created in God's image to be his sons and daughters. Which one of us earned that? Did Adam earn that? Did Eve earn that? No. Now, they, there was no demerit there. There was no sin there. But nobody earned that. It was just given by God. We were created to know God, to walk with God, to imitate God, to participate in his life, his work, his joy, and his glory, all completely apart from anything man had done to earn it. All of that just favor was poured out from the very beginning in creation. And then when man fell and came under God's just condemnation and curse, God superabounded toward man in his love and grace. Ephesians 2 verse 4. God, who is rich in mercy, why? Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved. This is what it means. By grace you have been saved. And the only thing we've contributed up to this point in these verses is our sin and our bondage to death. That's our contribution to our salvation. And he furthermore raised us up together with Christ, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in response, an essential feature that is to be woven throughout all that we bring to God in worship is gratitude and thanksgiving. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. By him, that is by Jesus Christ, let us continually offer, notice, the pervasiveness, continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Ephesians 5, verse 20, Give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times, one of the things David prayed In Psalm 51, this was his great psalm of confession and repentance for the sins concerning Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah, a truly godly and righteous man. And one of the things that David prays for is for God to restore the joy of his salvation. And, of course, joy is something 
that we would all like to have. We would all like to know that and would like for it to fuel us. Joy, though, is something that is very elusive. You move for it, you move to grab it, and it, it moves away. It's like reaching for something underwater, and it scoots, it scoots away from, from you. Gratitude is the key for joy. If you go straight at joy, it's running from you all the time. You can never get it. But you can pursue gratitude. The way you pursue gratitude is you give thanks. Giving thanks is an act. It is something objective that can be done in faith, regardless of the emotions that you're feeling at the time. You can give thanks in the name of Christ because God works all things together for your good. You know that. You can give thanks. You give thanks. You cultivate gratitude. Gratitude grabs joy by the hand and pulls it in with it. That's the way it works. So worship is thanksgiving to God for his love and grace. Number three, worship is giving our whole selves to God. Worship is giving our whole selves to God. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, I mentioned this the other day. He's specifically referring to bodies as a way of saying your whole selves because in the, in the uh, Roman Empire, which was still Hellenistic, it was still dominated by Greek thought, um, evil was, was a function of matter. And so it was a function of the body. And so it was the soul that was kind of imprisoned by the body. That was where all the problems came from. And so you could worship God with your soul, but the idea of presenting your body to, uh, you know, to God, that, that did not fit with the way they thought. So that's why Paul is picking that word. That would have jarred everybody in the first century. Present your body. If you're going to present even your body... That means you're presenting your whole self. That's what Paul is saying there. You present your whole self a living sacrifice. Now, the Old Testament background for this was called the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering because with that offering, the whole animal had to be offered up to the Lord. The worshiper couldn't keep any part of the animal. The the worshiper couldn't cook part of the animal and make a meal out of it. The entire animal had to be offered up in the flame on the altar to God. And so in our English Bibles, it's typically called the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering. Exodus 29, 18 gives you an example. Here's the command. You shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma. You have an example in 1 Samuel 7, verse 9. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. This is the offering that Paul's referring to in Romans 12, 1. So if he's pulling that up, that means our whole selves have to be presented in worship to the Lord. This is the most basic worship offering in the Old Testament. It is the one that you see being offered long before the law of Moses came along. It's the the offering we see the most ancient fathers giving, 
Noah, for example, in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20. That's what Paul is alluding to in Romans 12, 1. Offer our whole selves to the Lord. In Christ, God has given his whole self to us. Our only reasonable response is to give our whole selves to God. Think about what Jesus taught the disciples on the eve of his crucifixion around the table right before his arrest, as we see in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That's all taking place around the table before his arrest. He tells them that he is going to ascend from the Father, but he is going to send the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, he says that he and the Father will inhabit the disciples. That's what I mean when I say that in Christ, God has given us his whole self. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us where all of creation and all of salvation is moving. The whole purpose for which God created us is that we have to be filled up with all the fullness of God. And he explains to do that, we have to know the fullness of God's love. We have to know the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of the love of God in Christ. In other words, you look back to creation, you look at all these things that God freely gave man, and it's just love everywhere. It's an ocean of love already. It's everywhere. But that's not the fullness of God's love. To see the full height, The full depth, length, and breadth of God's love, you can't see it till you get to Christ on the cross. You can't see it until sin enters the world. We're slaves to Satan, sin, and death. God gives his only begotten son to become one of us, go to the cross, into the grave, rise again, ascend into heaven, be glorified to the position we're originally created for, pour out his spirit, within us and by that spirit to inhabit us. Only when you get to Christ and the cross can we see the full extent of God's love, which is necessary if we as sons and daughters of God are going to be filled up with all the fullness of God. And by the way, let me just mention that 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 truth, which was God's plan from the beginning, That is the answer to the so-called problem of evil. So you see here what I mean when I say that in Christ, God has given us his whole self. And so our only reasonable response is to give our whole selves to God. Worship is giving our whole selves to God. Number four, worship is ascending into the presence of God in Christ. Worship is ascending into the presence of God in Christ. Now, this imagery also comes from the language of the burnt offering in the Old Testament. You see, the word burnt and burnt offering, the word burnt is not actually a good translation of the Hebrew word because the Hebrew word doesn't have anything to do with burnt. Or cooking. The Hebrew word literally means to go up. 
It is the go up offering. It is the ascension offering. That's what it means to ascend. So if we follow the Hebrew, the proper name for this offering would not be burnt offering. It would be ascension offering. One of the best illustrations of what this offering is all about is in Judges chapter 13. And I would ask you, remember this passage, because if there's ever any confusion or you're trying to explain to somebody what this offering is about, this passage in Judges 13 gives you a perfect picture. Now, here we have the angel of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, um, you have to remember, angel is a function term. It is not a being term. The being term would be cherubim or seraphim. Angel just means messenger. And so you see angel, messenger, sometimes being used of cherubim or seraphim, sometimes of people or pastors and so forth. So you'll have the, the angel of the Lord. They're, they're the Lord's messengers. He sends them on errands. But occasionally you see someone referred to as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. And almost always what it's talking about there is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ before he was incarnate in a man. In other words, it is God the Son manifesting himself before he becomes carnate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the angel of the Lord here appearing to Manoah and his wife. They are the parents of Samson. His wife has been barren all her life. The angel of the Lord appears and announces that she is going to have a son. It is going to be Samson. He's going to be one of the great judges who's going to start to deliver God's people from the Philistines. So here, Manoah and his wife are meeting with the angel of the Lord, but he appears to them to be a man. So they know he's coming with a message from God, but they do not realize that he's not a real man. And so Manoah offers a, a, an offering and a meal to um, this who he thinks to be a man. It's actually the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord says in Judges thirteen sixteen, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, an ascension offering, you must offer it to the Lord. In other words, the whole animal has to go. I'm not going to eat part of it. The whole animal has to be offered up. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah took the young goat and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. Verse 20. And it happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar... The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now, that's what this offering is all about. So the fire in this offering does not represent the wrath of God, which is what a lot of people think. It represents the glory of God. How did God manifest his glory and presence in the Old Testament? In the pillar of fire. And so this ascension offering, the whole animal goes up in the flames, converted into smoke, goes up 
into the presence of God. That's the picture, exactly what the angel of the Lord does here. Go up in the glory of God, ascend up into the presence of God. That's what Paul is saying we do in worship. In Christ, we have access to enter the holiest of holies. That's where the actual presence and glory of God was manifested through the glory cloud, the whirlwind of fire in the Old Testament. And we have access to worship God in the spirit. We ascend into his very presence. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This is what we are giving voice to in the worship service near the beginning when I say, lift up your hearts. And you say, we lift them up to the Lord. That's about coming into the Lord's presence, sitting at the Lord's table, which we've already talked about, but ascending, as it were, into the presence of the Lord. Now, when we talk about ascending into the presence of the Lord, Heaven is always presented in the Bible as being up. It is above the earthly creation. It is more glorious, and all power and authority comes from heaven. And yet, we can't completely think about that in a spatial sense because we have things like um, Jesus in John chapter 3 telling Nicodemus that no one... Uh, No one has ascended into heaven except for the Son of Man who came down from heaven who is in heaven. That's what he says. He came down from heaven, and yet he refers to himself as being in heaven. And what you still come to realize when you think about it is, even though we can't grasp all of this, is that God the Son, who in the incarnation in Jesus became the Son of God, Wherever he is, the presence of God is there. And heaven and earth have been joined. He's where heaven and earth meet. He's where sin stops and righteousness and forgiveness begins. He's where death stops and life begins. Jesus is the temple. So you have that. You have instances like Genesis 28 where Jacob is running from Esau. He's out in the desert. He goes to sleep at night, and he sees a ladder joining earth and heaven, and he sees the angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And God makes and reiterates the covenant promises to him, and when he wakes in the morning, he he says, God is in this place, and I did not know it. He's in the middle of the desert. And he goes, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God, and yet he hasn't moved. In Revelation chapter 4, John is called to out of heaven, and the voice says, come up, up, come up here, and I will show you things which will shortly take to place. And then John says, immediately I was in the spirit. Now, he's not moving, he's not moving bodily, but in the spirit... He is going up, up into heaven. And so we have to understand that it is by the Spirit that
that we ascend. Because Christ also says that he inhabits us and he is with us. Now, we can't fully grasp all of this, but I I want you to understand these various aspects of this dimension of us ascending into heaven. Here's a good picture. Think about Jesus with the disciples just before his arrest and crucifixion. When he knows all of that's about to happen, it's the Passover time. He wants to celebrate the Passover meal with them. He's also going to institute the Lord's Supper. What does he do? Where does he take them? He takes them up into an upper room and he seats them at table. Luke 22:12 through 14. What does he do once he's there? Now think, think about our worship service as I'm going through this. Jesus washes their feet telling them that if he does not do so, then they have no part in him. And then when Peter says, well, wash my whole body, Jesus says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. John chapter 13, 3 through 10. Then Jesus speaks the word of God to them at length. He assures them of his love. He assures them of his coming death, subsequent glorification. He assures them of his continued presence with them by the Holy Spirit and how they are to be his witnesses, John 13, all the way through John chapter 16. Jesus intercedes for them in prayer and for the church and kingdom generally, all those worldwide through history that will come to faith through their word, John chapter 17. Jesus institutes and celebrates the Lord's Supper with them. Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. And they conclude with a song, we're told. And traditionally, during the Passover meal, the what was called the Hallel, that Psalms 113 through 118 is called the Hallel, they would sing all those various psalms in the course of the Passover meal. They would sing Psalm 113 and 14, more in the middle, Psalm 115 through 18, more near the end, thus making the latter part of Psalm 118 is what almost assuredly Jesus and the twelve sang just before they went out and Jesus is going to be arrested. Now, this is significant because the latter part of Psalm 118 is about what? Messiah's resurrection and victory. Psalm 118, verse 17, I shall not die, but shall live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief's cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. In other words, worship God. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Now, what Jesus did with the disciples on that occasion is a general pattern that you find in Scripture. And it is exactly what our worship service every Sunday is patterned after. And as Jesus was with them, 
so he is with us. John 3.13, no one, uh, Jesus says that wherever even two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them, Matthew 18.20. So Jesus is with us just as much as he was with them, except it is not bodily, so we cannot see him. He is with us by the Spirit. So worship is ascending into the presence of God in Christ. Number five, worship is God reaffirming his covenant love for us and us for him in Christ. Worship is God reaffirming his covenant love for us and us for him in Christ. This is where the term covenant renewal worship comes from. It's just referring to the fact that God reaffirms his covenant love to us and us to him in the worship service. In Christ, God takes us to himself as his own people, collectively as his bride. And he does so by covenant oath. Ezekiel 16, this is a passage where God refers to his people as his bride. Listen to what he says in verse 8. I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. Why do we take oaths at the wedding ceremony? Because God took an oath to us. That's why. And our marriages are a reflection of his spiritual marriage with his people. Jeremiah 1 verse 2, the Lord says, I remember the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness. He refers to Sinai as a marriage ceremony. Chapter 3 verse 14, return, O backsliding children. Why? Because I am married to you. Think of a couple who's been married for many years. And they want to show and express their love and commitment for one another. So what do they do? They have another wedding service to re-exchange their vows, to reaffirm their love and pledge to one another. That is essentially what happens every single week in the worship service. God reaffirms and repledges his love to us by welcoming us into his house and presence, by cleansing our sins, Christ washing our feet one more time, by encouraging us with his word, by serving us the Lord's Supper, and by giving us his blessing. And we reaffirm and repledge our love to God in our praises, in our songs, in the confession of faith right after the sermon, in our tithes and offerings, and in our closing pledge, which is what? We will love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. So worship is God reaffirming his covenant love for us and us for him in Christ. Now, number six, worship is us taking on the likeness of God and serving him in Christ. Worship is us taking on the likeness of God and serving him in Christ. This is the meaning of Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, or literally to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, what lies behind this is the fundamental spiritual law that we become like what we worship. Everyone worships something 
even if it's themselves. And whatever we worship, we become like. Psalm 115, verse 8, those who make idols will become like them. So will everyone who trusts in them. That also means that the converse is true. Whatever we are becoming like, whatever is shaping us, is our God. That's what we're worshiping. Not necessarily what we profess, but what is shaping us, what we are becoming like. So if we're truly worshiping God, truly offering our whole selves to him, then we will become more and more like God step by step, inch by inch, and certain sometimes in certain areas of life, as we all know, that can be a belly crawl. It's millimeter by millimeter. But we are becoming like the living God whom we worship. We are being renewed and transformed from the inside out. On the other hand... If we, in fact, are becoming more like the surrounding culture, that's what he means by this world or this age. And the best definition I've ever heard of what the Bible means when it talks about do not love this world or the world or don't be conformed to this age is the world and the age when it's used in that way. What it's talking about is just that whole feel that whole system, that whole way of thinking and living that surrounds us that makes, that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem weird. That's the best way to understand it. And that happens in countless ways. It makes sin seem normal. It makes righteousness seem strange, odd, weird. So we are becoming... Like what we worship, it's an escapable spiritual law. And this gives us the true nature of biblical obedience. Biblical obedience is simply living worship. It is just simply working out this continually giving of our whole selves to God. Number seven, worship makes a difference. Worship makes a difference. We began looking at this last week. We looked at Joshua 5 and 6. We looked at the fall of Jericho. We looked at God explained to them point blank. It's, it's, like, it's like a coach telling a football team, we cannot beat this team that we're about to play. Their offense is better than our offense. Their defense is better than our defense. And their kicking teams are better than our kicking team. We cannot beat this team. Now go get them. That's, that's what God says to Joshua. Every one of these nations in the land of Canaan is bigger and stronger than you. And here's the most powerful city, the famed wall of Jericho, which is impenetrable. It cannot be touched. It cannot be destroyed. And he says, I'm giving it to you. There it is. But what he has them do is to worship for six and a half days. That's all they do is worship for six and a half days. Otherwise, they don't make a sound. They don't do anything. Halfway through the seventh day, the walls topple. Worship makes a difference. God has to rise up on our behalf. None of the things which God calls us to do as Christians are we capable of doing. 
of ourselves. Every single thing that God asks us to do as Christians is something that's impossible for us to do in and of ourselves. We are dependent on God rising up on our behalf, offering worship to God as he has commanded with the hearts he has commanded. That steaks on the grill and bread from the oven for God. That is what pleases God to associate himself with sinners like us and to rise up on our behalf and to show himself mighty. Remember, we do not have a political war that we're asking God to come help us with. We're in a worship war. We're in a faith war. We're in a religious war. It is God's war that he's giving us the privilege of fighting with him in so that we can share in his victory. You also see it in Genesis 8. After the flood, Noah offers up the worship to the God. It's no coincidence that it is right after that that God says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Worship makes a difference. There is no greater privilege we have. There is no more powerful thing we can do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.